so this is that like I don't know 15,000 feet or something so that's like higher than any point in the continental US so there's not a ton of oxygen up there to begin with and I felt great going up at this point I wasn't feeling any altitude sickness and I was like oh this is super cool because it was this pretty steep downhill with some big rocks on it and then I was trying to catch back up with Hannah and she saw me coming. She saw me like running down. She's like, this is gonna be good. So she got her camera out. So I actually have a video of this and I got going too fast. And then I remembered like the thought going through my head, like I'm out of control. This is gonna hurt. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I, I like missed a step and just went like head first. And uh, in the video, especially if you put it in slow motion, you can see my eyes roll back into my head after I hit my head. And Hannah's response was, man, you need to learn how to fall better. <laughs> I was like, you jerk. <laughs> Hello, welcome back to my podcast. Today, I'll be talking with Ryan Hawkinson about his exploration and trek to the Mount Everest base camp and all the way up to 18,500 feet elevation. For some context, that's about 4,000 feet higher than any mountain in the continental US. You'll get to hear a little more about him and what brought him to Everest, but there's one more specific thing that makes him special. He's my younger brother. I'm super excited for this podcast because I've always been obsessed with mountains, especially the Himalayas. I went to Nepal about five years ago and hiked through the valleys and mountainous regions, but never near Everest. Before Ryan took this trip, I had told him for years that hiking to Everest Base Camp was at the very top of my bucket list. Then, what does he do as a typical younger competitive brother? Uh, he calls me up and tells me, hey bud, I'm going to Everest Base Camp before you. I'm sorry if I nerd out a little or talk about excessive details, but I know anyone else interested in this subject may have the same questions and interests. So I hope you enjoy the stories, tips, and experience of Ryan's trip hiking through India, Nepal, and the 80 total miles adventure to Everest Base Camp. Ryan, what's up? Hey, dude. Uh, for those who may not know, Ryan is my brother. He's a year and a half younger, um, but of course, as you saw from the intro, has done something that I've wanted to do forever, <laughs> and then all of a sudden one day he's like, oh, I'm going to go uh, climb to Everest Base Camp. That was probably my greatest victory as a younger sibling, <laughs> was that moment telling you that. I figured. Be, I'm, that I'm and when you stopped you. playing me in basketball because you realized I would beat you. <laughs> Ryan is, he's a year and a half younger than me, but he's also about like six inches taller than me. Yep. Um, so yeah, that doesn't help. I still don't think I've ever blocked your layup though because you like turn horizontal. All jealousy and stuff aside, I am very happy that you've gotten to do some super dope things in a specifically Everest base camp. And so a lot of the stuff that we talk about today is going to be stuff that I've never talked to you about or I haven't heard specific, like these specific details of your trip. So I'm actually <laughs> very excited about this. Um, but anyway, first of all, a quick background of Mount Everest. From like grade school, we're taught about it because it's the highest, highest elevation mountain in the world. Some quick facts for you guys. Mount Everest is 29,029 feet above sea level, which is also 8,848 meters. One thing that I didn't know for a long time before reading some book was uh, that Everest has different names um, in the different places. We, of course, in America know it as Everest. A lot of the world does. But in Nepal, so Everest is actually on the border of Nepal and Tibet because it's a huge mountain, so it kind of separates the two. Um, in Nepal, it's authentic name or whatever, Ryan, maybe you could help me with, <laughs> do they actually call it this? But they call it Sagarmatha? Sagarmatha is like the, 
it's like the goddess of the sky or something like that. So when you're there, do you hear like the locals and Sherpas and stuff calling it that, or do you just call it, hear them say Everest? Yeah, when they see white people, they know that we are <laughs> <laughs> not uncultured swines. <laughs> yes, we are uncultured swine. <laughs> so yeah, to us, I never heard somebody ca- tell me it was Sagarmatha, but I, th- I think they might have explained it to us. Like, but on a uh-huh. regular basis, you hear Everest. First summit of Mount Everest, this is what we read in our history books, was Sir Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay. Um, that was in 1953. A bunch of stuff in the area is like named after them, right? Yeah. Yeah. So like there's a there's a big school somewhere named after Hillary. Um, but Tenzing Norgay is like a local legend kind of. Like he's mm. kind of a hero because he's the like that first Sherpa that did it. That's super cool. The Sherpa culture is actually really dope. Like they hold in like very high esteem the Sherpas who have died. Um, <laughs> the locals don't really care about the tourists who have kind of died. <laughs> but there's a you we you'll pass by like on the way to the base camp we pass by some like monuments and stuff that were in like in remembrance of the Sherpas because they like have a super high respect for them, and they're wild. <laughs> some of them have summited like ten times, like up to ten times, and yeah. They're yeah. really, in, and they don't use oxygen nearly as much as us right. mere mortals. Yeah, it's true. And from a lot of the different accounts that I've read in different books of Everest, all of them, they talk with great respect for the Sherpas for sure, but yeah. also in a way that's like, oh, they can do anything. <laughs> and so like, yeah. oh, we need them to carry 10 more pounds? Sure. Without oxygen to the summit? Sure. Like, of course they're going to make it to the summit. So it's like never conditional on the, if the Sherpas can make it or not. Because <laughs> like, they always can make it. <laughs> well, because they, some of them grew up at like 16,000 feet. <laughs> and that's just like, at 16,000 feet, there's like about half of the oxygen that you have at sea level. So they're just like, they just, breathing is, like, optional for them. They don't really need oxygen. <laughs> That's one of the biggest difficulties and dangers of climbing Mount Everest is there's 66% less oxygen on the summit than at sea level. And so almost everyone who goes to the summit, they need supplemental oxygen and mass and tanks and all that stuff, and that stuff gets really heavy. Um, but the Sherpas, most of the time, like, they don't even need that because <laughs> they've yeah. just been acclimatized their whole lives to that elevation. Um yeah, but Ryan, tell us uh, a little bit about yourself and then get into what what kind of motivated you to uh, go to Everest Base Camp. Yeah, so I'm Ryan Hawkinson. Uh, I am Caleb Hawkinson's brother. Um, I've known him ever since I was born. Um, wow. How's that yep. been? Oh, <laughs> that's not what we're here to talk about. <laughs> that's for another okay. podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I... Uh, Kind of like Caleb, not quite to Caleb's extent, but I do I do enjoy traveling and uh, experiencing new cultures, meeting people around the world and stuff like that. So I spent eight months in the Philippines as a student missionary, helping out a medical clinic and doing other cool things. Um, and that was a really good experience. And before that, um, the summer before I went there, I'd worked at Alaska camps, which if anybody is of camp working age and looking for a job, I would highly suggest Alaska camps. Date-wise, like how long ago was that? What year was all this happening? Um, so I worked at Alaska camps. That was my first summer working Alaska camps. That was the summer of 2018. Summer 2018. Oh. <clears throat> when I was in Alaska, I met my friend Hannah, and she was about to go be a student missionary in India. And she said that her and her dad were potentially planning a trip where he was going to fly out and they would do the Everest base camp together. And I was like, that is crazy. That's so cool. 
and we talked about me potentially joining them. Um, and it was just kind of like a, a dream. And then when I was in the Philippines, kind of the beginning of 2019, like January, February, we started realizing that plan and looking at, you know, plane tickets and stuff like that to get me to go and visit her in India. And then we would uh, journey to Nepal and meet up with her dad and do it. Um, and it kind of became a realization and then it happened. <laughs> so after your time in the Philippines, after you guys were done, you went straight to India, right? Yeah. So I was, um, it was just, I added it as a stop on the way back home because my tickets mm -hmm. to come back home were already paid for. So I was able to switch some stuff around so I could nice. stop in India on the way. I ended up, I flew from the Philippines to, I think Hong Kong and from Hong Kong to Delhi, from Delhi to a smaller airport, and then from there I flew into this place in Manipur, which is in the northeast part of India. Um, and that last leg of the journey, my phone broke. So I had no contact, no way to contact Hannah or anyone else. I had no idea if there was going to be someone at the airport to pick me up. And I was like, kind of nervous. Uh, no way to contact <laughs> anyone. I had like, I don't remember. I think I had like 10 bucks worth of rupees in my wallet. So, um, but luckily there was somebody there, um, from the school that Hannah was at and they recognized me and I was good. So I spent, I spent a couple of weeks, um, in India with Hannah and her friends there. And she was working at a, it was like a school slash kind of like an orphanage. Um, mainly a school though. It was really cool. Uh, had a lot of bunch of cool kids, uh, really nice. Between India and then the journey to Nepal, I spent like forty hours on buses. Um, <laughs> well, let me let me pause you there because when I think about people coming to Nepal for Everest trips or expeditions, um, it's always by flight, of course, for good reason, <laughs> and it's uh, in you get these sweeping views of the Himalayas. So, so what's super cool about the geography of the whole area is India is relatively flat in some areas, maybe not so in the upper north side, but then all of a sudden once you get to the Himalayas, it's just like this huge mass of of elevated earth, which would be a super cool thing to see from a plane. Yeah, so that sounds really poetic and beautiful. Uh, that was not my experience. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we took from India, we took a bus to like the border of India and Nepal, and we took a train. Maybe we took a train. It was a lot of traveling and it all blurred together. But at one point we were on a train, which was actually by far the best mode mm. of transportation because it was pretty smooth. They had little like vendors that would go through the cars so we could like get food. Had some like really good nice. samosas. Oof. Ooh. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that train ride was dope. We had like beds we could lay down in and it was wonderful. Then <clears throat> we got on... Um, the Indian buses were pretty bad, pretty bouncy, um, made for Indian-sized people, uh, which for people who haven't been to India, um, Indian people are not very long. Um, and That's I'm, like my I'm, favorite part about going to India. Yeah, no, it's made for your size. Like, you're the average Indian man. <laughs> um, I'm six feet tall, Thank so not you. like super tall, but for Indians, I'm very tall. Yeah, So definitely. leg space in buses is just non-existent. Um, also head space. Uh, on the bus, when we were in Nepal, we did an overnight bus trip from the border to Kathmandu, 
And it was actually really beautiful whenever we could see, um, just like going through the mountains, going up. But I definitely, I broke the ceiling of the bus with my head. Um, <laughs> yeah, we hit a bump big enough. Well, the bump didn't even have to be that big for me to hit my head. I hit my head plenty of times. But one time we hit a bump big enough to give me enough momentum to break the plastic ceiling above me. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and what was the most annoying part was that Hannah was knocked out. Like, I almost was physically knocked out, but she was, like, <laughs> like sleeping knocked out almost the entire time. She was able to sleep, and I don't know how. That's hilarious. <laughs> so you guys took the bus all the way to Kathmandu, right? Yeah, so it was we took a... A train. It was like a bus, and then a train, and then a bus to get to the border of India mm-hmm. and Nepal. And then once we got into Nepal, we took a bus. Um, we had to get like visas and permits and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we we took a bus to Kathmandu. Nice. Kathmandu is well. Nepal in general is always. Whenever people ask me like, "What are your favorite countries that you've been to?" Always, without a doubt, Nepal is on the list because of the mountains, the culture, the valleys. But it's just so unique. Um, And so the city that I spent the most time in Nepal was Pokhara. But, like, we flew into Kathmandu and spent a day or so there. But I'm going to read a quick quote from this book where they're describing Kathmandu. Okay, so this book that I'm about to read from is actually called Seven Summits. It's an account of Dick Bass and Frank Wells, who are the first two men in history to summit the highest peak on every continent. And so this little piece of the book is from when they were flying into Kathmandu uh, to attempt their Everest summit. I feel like it's about the best explanation of the mix of culture, (laughs) of Western, and just like the religion playing into everything. Um, So here's how Frank and and Dick explain on their voyage. Uh, It says, Frank was about to land in a Marco Polo city, plucked from the 13th century and set into the 20th a place with a thin skin of modernity over a body of timeless Hindu and Buddhist ritual. Kathmandu had cars, but if your car happened to hit any of the hundreds of sacred cows that wandered the streets, you were certain to go to jail. And the only way out was to prove to the court that the cow had intended to commit suicide. <laughs> it, was a, it was a city with an airport serviced by the latest jet aircraft, but there were planes that each year in a solemn ceremony were smeared with the blood of a goat or a chicken sacrificed for the well-being of the plane and those who rode in it. It was a city where on Friday you could pick up a phone at your room in a Sheraton and get a satellite connection to New York, then on Saturday catch a taxi to the river to watch the weekly animal sacrifices at the Hindu temple. Dang. Did that does that feel accurate to what you experienced there? <laughs> yeah, I didn't ever see chickens slaughtered and thrown onto airplanes. <laughs> Good. <laughs> but the the cow thing is definitely all across India and Nepal. Yeah. There's just yeah. like cows everywhere and because the cows are sacred, they don't keep them from going into the streets. Um Yeah, the whole like part about proving that a cow was trying to commit suicide. <laughs> I have don't know about that one to the most of my ability or the most of my knowledge I've never seen a suicidal cow we're gonna move on from from this quick and get into actual hike and everything but tell me quick what the difference is between Nepal and India that you witnessed yeah I would say I would kind of compare it to different parts of the U.S. actually I would compare Mm. it from like um so like living in the Midwest I've grown up in the Midwest I know you did too um 
there's kind of like that Midwest agricultural lifestyle. And I mean, you have cities and stuff. Um, but then if you go to Colorado or Washington or places where there's a lot of outdoors, there's a different culture to it. You know, like there's a lot more, there's a higher percentage of people who are active, like doing outdoor sports and like in the mountains and that kind of like everyone's wearing you know, like North Face or some kind of like yeah, outdoors you're not gonna brands see, and stuff. You're not going to see North Face outlets in India. <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> exactly. So, but when you get to Nepal, it's almost just like a whole, uh, it's, I love, Kathmandu is super interesting. Kathmandu is like a very, it's kind of got like a spiritual, especially like Buddhist kind of feel. And there's a lot of like, oh my gosh, I stopped counting after like, I think it was like 18 people offered me weed just like in the streets. Like <laughs> always like, like they'd come up and they've, cause I think it's illegal cause they all had like hoodies on and stuff and they'd like come up and they'd be like, like kind of like close enough to where they're always bumping into me. Like, Hey, Hey man, like you want to smoke? You want to smoke, man? You want to smoke, bro? And I was like, <laughs> so a lot of like weed smoking and like super chill vibes. And I really liked it. Um, nice. I, I never, uh, participated in the delicacies of the married Joanna, but get um, to know. Yeah. You're not going to put nice. that there, but <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's more of like a kind of a mountainy vibe, which makes sense because uh-huh. like Kathmandu is almost in like a valley. I mean, there, you can see mountains yep. on both sides of it. Um, and for those who uh, don't know, Kathmandu is, it's the capital of yeah. Nepal and the biggest city as well. So it's like the epi- epicenter essentially of, of the country. Um, but one thing that you got to do minus the Everest base camp that I'm super jealous of is, is you got to fly from Kathmandu into Lukla airport, which is like kind of widely known as one of the most dangerous or as the most dangerous airport in the world for sure. One of, and for yeah. those who, if you can picture it, look it up, Google it. Cause it's super interesting. It's just like on a mountain plateau and the airport or the runway is literally like at an angle because it's so short that if it was flat planes wouldn't be able to take off and like they need that extra grade (laughs) to gain more momentum so they can fly off the cliff (laughs) yeah and it's also to slow them down when they're coming in (laughs) exactly yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) so they have to go uphill when they're coming in so their speed declines more or else they just run into the mountain and they have to gain speed going downhill taking off or else they just fall off the cliff (laughs) what was that like and (laughs) yeah so just like thinking about it right now reminded me of a you remember that one time we went golfing and uh, we were like in the golf cart and you were driving and you grabbed your phone with one hand and started like recording on Snapchat while you were holding the wheel with the other one. And I knew something was about to happen. And then you just like cranked the wheel to the left. So it like turned super sharply and I literally just like slingshotted and flew out of the golf cart. Yeah, That's what it feels like to land in Lukla. Because <laughs> um, you come in and it's just like, coming to a screeching halt like because as, as soon as they hit the runway the runway is the length of like five football fields um so it's so like yeah i have a quick uh, i looked it up the air, the runway at the lukla airport is 1729 feet which sometimes like that can sound like a lot of feet for a, a runway um but <laughs> until you put it in perspective most international airports runways are 10,000 feet <laughs> yeah so they're landing these planes and like if you 10 feet short of the runway, like, you crash into a cliff. And, like, 20 feet after the runway, you 
crash into a city <laughs> or a little town like Lukla. So, yeah, so you, like, land, and it touches down, and then you're going on this, like, uphill grade, and the pilot is, like, slamming on the brakes, and then at the end of the runway, like, it felt like there wasn't enough room on the runway to slow down, so, like, the parking lot is at the end of the runway and to the right, so while they were still slamming on the brakes, they, like, almost, it felt like we were, like, drifting into the parking lot, just, like, <laughs> swerving into the parking lot. Except or, for an airplane drifting. Yeah. <laughs> um, That's awesome. Yeah, so it was, like, a little scary, um, but also definitely a cool experience. Lukla Airport is always listed as one of the most dangerous airports in the world. Google it while you're listening to this. You won't be disappointed. It has some crazy pictures of how steep and crazy that runway is. It's spelled L-U-K-L-A. And its actual name is Tenzing Hillary Airport, named after, of course, the first pier to summit Everest. So after surviving, making it to the beginning of the trek, they needed to make sure they had planned well enough to survive the rest of the journey. How did you guys plan to go? Talk to me just a little bit about um, what the planning for the trip was. Um, and like, <laughs> did you guys need porters or, or Sherpas or guides or how, how did that go? Yeah. So my friend Hannah's dad, um, at the time he had, I think he had just recently turned 60, um, and this guy, <laughs> this guy is wild. <laughs> um, he is, so he, he would, he told me a whole bunch of stories about like caving and construction and stuff that he did. And, um, he's, he's wild. Some, he, uh, went on some adventures with some guys that I know of from the international rescue and relief program that I'm doing at union college. Um, and some of the guys that I know to be hardcore dudes, like one of these guys was on survivor like on the TV mm. show Survivor or one of those shows. And the other guy was the founder of the International Rescue and Relief Program. And this guy, <laughs> Hannah's, uh, Mr. Wilson, was talking about how he went caving with them. And he was like, they were so slow. I was so bored with them. <laughs> so I just left them. <laughs> and they were like really mad at him because they'd never been to that cave before. And he just like left them because they were too slow. Because it was like these series of waterfalls in a cave. And they wanted to, like, be safe and, like, repel the waterfalls. And he was like, no, like, there's a deep spot in the water right there. I'm just going to jump. <laughs> and they were, like, <laughs> not down. So, anyways, that's just, like, on his 50th birthday, he did a standing back tuck, like a standing back flip. So this guy's really hardcore and, like, he's just a really strong guy. I mean, he's super strong. And anyways, <clears throat> so he was, like, he did some research. Um, I don't know how much research, but he did enough. He also had a, a guidebook. So... We were like, we have a guidebook, and we've been hiking before, so we're fine. <laughs> so, um, yeah, we didn't hire a porter, um, which the porters are, are the people who, like, carry your your stuff because it gets heavy when you're mm -hmm. um, doing a trek like that. And then a, a Sherpa, or a Sherpa is actually a specific, almost like a company of guides. Um, so they're not all card, called Sherpas. Um so you hire a guide, which is usually a Sherpa, like part of that company. Um, so so we didn't... yeah, explain, explain that to me a little bit. So this is just another thing that through my like research or just reading stories and stuff have, have questioned like our Sherpas. Cause sometimes when I hear them explained, I almost feel like they're like almost a sort of national, not a nationality, but like a tribe almost of people that like Sherpas are the people who live in, in, at these elevations and they're like, yeah, for generations, the Sherpas live there, and that's just kind of who they are. And some Sherpas are are go carry things, 
Um, is that the case or, or what kind of, give us a good description of <laughs> what exactly a Sherpa is. Yeah, so you probably, you might have more knowledge on that than me. Um, going into it, I I thought, and I think this is what most people think of, like Westerners think of, is that a Sherpa is just the guide that takes you up the mountain. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know that there is more to it than that. It is, I don't know if it's a, if it's a tribe or something or a nationality or if it's just like, uh, like a union kind of, um, mm. of guides. Um, as far as I know, the Sherpas are primarily the guides. I don't know if the porters are also Sherpas. Um, okay. but yeah, there is more to it than what we normally just think of when we think of a Sherpa. Okay, so after more looking and reading, I found we were kind of right and wrong. Sherpas are an ethnic group native to the most mountainous regions of Nepal in the Himalayas. They are, of course, well-renowned for their skills in mountaineering and endurance, so naturally assisting other climbers to the summit of Everest has just become a common profession for their people. And actually, the top five summiters of Everest in history are all Sherpas. Each of those top five have been to the summit of Everest over 20 times. What did you guys have to pack? Oof. Um, The, you know, normal stuff, like some clothes and stuff. Um, The trek, we were planning on anywhere between 12 and 15 days. Um, We didn't even have a plan, really. Like, we were just kind of going. Normally, you have a very detailed plan, and you've got a a guide and stuff. But um, most most Westerners who do this actually do it with, like, a guided group. um, And they go with like an expedition company or something that that takes them even all. even just to base camp <clears throat> yeah even just to base camp um there are a few people that just kind of go like we did but not too many of them most of them a lot more experienced than we were um <clears throat> but yeah packing was <laughs> we actually had a i remember in our in our little hostel in Kathmandu when we were all packing um <laughs> Mr. Wilson was like, we're going to bring so much food so that we don't have to pay for all this food, which, you know, I agreed with to an extent. Um, but also, <laughs> I was like, dude, that's so much weight. <laughs> like, these packs are so heavy. Um, for so those had, who don't know, a... for those who don't know Ryan, he's um, always a perpetual whatever's cheapest kind of guy. <laughs> On any trip we take, it's always either Taco Bell or turkey sandwiches, whatever is cheapest. I don't care how quality it is. <laughs> And so for well, him to say, yeah, let's shed pounds for sure, and I'll pay for food in the in the towns or whatever, that uh, that's saying something. Yeah. Well, yeah, it is, especially when you're going to where there's 50% of the oxygen that, that you're used to. But yeah, so there are definitely other factors. Also, living, living minimalist is the way to do it. I mean, like, mm-hmm. otherwise, would we have ever experienced sleeping in a parking lot in Telluride, Colorado, when it was like eight degrees outside? That's true. Yep. Always creates more memories. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so anyways, um, I was trying to be a little more... Me and Hannah were kind of arguing a little more minimalist approach, but mm. um, we kind of came to a compromise, but mainly we just took almost everything. Um, so our packs were... Um, I don't know exactly, but I'm I'm guessing when we left Kathmandu, our packs were about 40 pounds each. Um, okay. Somewhere around there. And that's... We had a lot of snacks. A lot of that weight was snacks. And then... Uh, when you fill up all the water bladders and stuff and water bottles, like mm-hmm. it got, you know, more, uh, a lot more weight very quickly. Um, yeah, so that was, the packs were, I would say, mainly food. We had a little bit of uh, like first aid stuff, 
Um, probably not as much as we should have. Hannah's a nurse, so we were confident. And I'm an EMT, so we were like, we'll be fine. Uh, <laughs> <coughs> nice. Okay, so we know they'd survive and be safe medically. So what was the actual trail like? And the experience of hiking 40 miles and about 9,000 vertical feet over 16 days. So now, after the packing and explora or exploration through India and uh, looking through the guidebooks and everything, you guys were ready for the high after flying into Lukla, the most dangerous airport in the world. Um, you guys were ready. How, how far was the hike? Um, so total round trip from Lukla to base camp and back is, uh, it's actually only 80 miles, which, um, you know, without the elevation totally. and... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, so Lukla is is about nine thousand feet. Um, yeah, Lukla is about nine thousand feet, uh, and then base camp is seventeen thousand five hundred feet. Um, the highest mm -hmm. we went is Kalapatar, which is eighteen thousand five hundred feet. Uh, so you're you're going from nine thousand feet is is very high. <laughs> nine thousand yeah. feet, you're already. Um, at a risk for altitude sickness. It's um, over a mile elevation. Yeah, no, it's almost two miles elevation. And then we doubled that. I mean, yeah. we got up to 18,500. Um, <clears throat> so that's what makes it, that's what makes it tough. Uh, the distance, 80 miles, is, I mean, that's a long ways, but it's, it's not too bad. It's, so it's like 40 miles one way, approximately. So how were your days pretty consistent with the distance that you went, or was it kind of some days you'd go like, uh, like seven, eight, ten miles. Other days you'd go three, four. Was it pretty consistent in the middle? Yeah. So it was. It was not very consistent. Um, it depended because some days, like your first day, uh, you go from, um, from Lukla to, um, this little town called uh, Fakting. Um, and that is you're actually going downhill most of the time, which is kind of discouraging. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know you've got like a lot of a lot of elevation to make up, and then you're like, we just spent a whole day going downhill. <laughs> that sucks. <laughs> um, so <clears throat> yeah, so on days that you're going downhill, you're gonna go more distance, um, and then you also have to take uh, like acclimation days, days where mm. you just rest, um, so you can like hike. Um, you know, go on to the next village or whatever, and then you leave their stuff there, um, like sleep there that night, and then the next day, you leave your stuff there, take a day pack, and hike up higher, spend a few hours up at the high point, and then hike back down and sleep low. So that's the best way to, to acclimate, just in general, if you're doing mountains or something like that, is you, right. you hike high, then you sleep low, and then hike high that's, and sleep low. That's interesting, because that's one thing that I was going to ask you about, um, just out of curiosity, because I know, obviously... For Everest, that's extremely common. Like if you're actually climbing, you spend a lot of time at base camp, then you'll do multiple like day hikes up to camp one uh, to get used to that elevation and then hike back down or carry gear from camp one to camp two and then in the same day come back. So you're getting up to that elevation, but then yeah, you're sleeping still lower so that you're subtly getting used to it until you can make it up and sleep at right. that higher elevation. Then, But you still guys still do that pretty often just going to base camp? Yeah, so it's... Um, just because, uh, like when they're actually summiting Everest, they're at a much higher altitude, obviously, but just cause you're right. at a higher altitude, you're still like changing the altitude the same right. amount, you know? So like if you go up 5,000 feet, 
even if that's 5,000 feet from, from 9,000 to 14,000, that's still going to be brutal, just like if you're going from 23 to 28. Huh. So, yeah, yeah we that's took really a, interesting. Yeah, and then I, we'll probably talk about this in a little bit, but we ended up with at least one uh, unexpected acclimation day. Ooh, I am excited to hear about that. Other circumstances. <laughs> um, <laughs> true. <laughs> I know what that's going to be. Uh, but tell me briefly, just like, what's the the climbing culture like that? Like, once you're actually on the trail from Lukla to base camp, I'm assuming that most of the people there that aren't locals are all there for Everest. Um, mm. And what's like the diversity on the trail of different people? And um, yeah, what's that like? That It's super cool. Um, and actually, that starts in Kathmandu so where our hostel was in Kathmandu was a it's like a common tourist area um so it's where a lot of a lot of people who are visiting will stay there and a lot of those people visiting um are doing Everest so just while we were shopping around in the local markets where you can get like really cheap fake North Face stuff which is great <laughs> uh, but while we were shopping around we would run into people I mean, you can tell the people who just come off the mountain because they're super sunburnt and like mm. <laughs> they're just like look kind of wrecked. <laughs> so we would see those people and you'd be like, hey, did you just like come down? And they're like, yeah. So we would talk to them and they could give us suggestions on like, this is what I would take with you if I were like if I were you and stuff like that. Um, those were people that had gone to the base camp or had gone up to like camps one or two or tried to summit. Um, you could meet some of some of both. The majority of the people you met just did base camp. Um, okay. Summiting costs like at least thirty thousand um, dollars. Yeah, I guess it depends on what what chance you want of surviving. <laughs> Maybe paying more money <laughs> gives you a better chance of surviving, but it's like one in fifty people die trying to summit. So wild. Um, at least historically, uh, actually, while we were on the trail, there were twelve people who died trying to summit just because it just got congested and people Jeez. were waiting in line and running out of oxygen and dying. So. Um, it's definitely dangerous and extremely expensive to actually summit. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, that's yeah. another hotly debated topic uh, amongst like a lot of different cultures and places, just about how how much business should actually be exposed to Everest, or how much Everest should be exposed to business and right. and it being commercialized. Well, that's a whole another topic that I don't know enough to discuss about, but yeah. <laughs> it makes a huge difference, and that's why a lot of people die because it's commercialized, and so many people yeah. are trying to that don't have any business being up there. Yeah, but I mean, anyways, yeah, we could get into that, but <laughs> um, um, but yeah, so so meeting people on the trail is super cool. We actually met. Um, there was four friends from, uh, from the UK. They were on the plane from Kathmandu to Lucknow with us. Um, and we talked with them. Uh, two of them were, were dating. They were really cool. Uh, their names were Elliot and Megan. And Elliot was a, uh, was a nurse and Megan was a paramedic. Um, and they had been dating for a while and they had worked for a few years, saved up money. And then they were spending a full year, 365 days traveling the world um and it was super cool hearing some of their stories were really cool and we actually ended up catching up with them or technically they caught up with us i think on the trail um and we stayed in a like in a tea house which are the little hotels on the way up we stayed in a tea house together and like played some cards with them and got to make friends with them um and i follow them on instagram and they're they're still dating and they're they like built a a van like renovated a van into a living Uh space and they're super cool. They're always like climbing mountains and stuff, so it's fun to kind of keep track of them. That's so cool. Yeah, experiencing stuff like that with other people that you actually get to be friends with is like makes it so much better. 
Yeah. But like you mentioned, the tea houses. Um, talk to me like on you guys' hike throughout. Like, is that where you guys stayed? And just tell me about like the whole setting of going up, hiking to Everest Base Camp. Like, what the heck? <laughs> what was yeah. the the setting like in in the like, what did you see on a daily basis? And where did you guys stay and eat and all of that? Yeah, so what you see on a daily basis depends on what part of the journey you're on. So at the beginning, there's you're in forests, and it's, you know, it's really beautiful everywhere you're at. But the beginning is really beautiful because of all the trees and stuff. And even past some, um, we passed some, like, actually a lot of, like, really big rocks that have some kind of Nepalese writing carved into them. And, hmm. um, yeah, so there's... It's really rich culturally. You're pa- you pass a lot of temples, a lot of uh, um, like the big rock piles and tons of the Tibetan prayer flags. And you get to cross some really cool bridges, like suspension bridges um, with like rivers underneath. There's lots of rivers. There's tons of yaks and there's a lot of, uh, I don't know if they're mules or donkeys, but the, <laughs> the yaks were like, they, I mean, they're big. And they almost scary sometimes when they're like passing you, um, and you like always when when the yaks are gonna pass, you just get out of their way and you stay kind of on the uphill side, because um, usually it's like on a mountain, so you know there's like an uphill side where it's either a a hill or a cliff, and then the downhill side where it's either down a hill or like down a cliff, um, and yeah, at one point, <laughs> Mr. Wilson got on the wrong side. And he <laughs> almost very closely almost got pushed off the cliff by a yak. <laughs> so that was a little scary, but um yeah, that was cool to see. I mean never been that up close in personal to yaks like that. At one of the tea houses that we stayed at, I tried a yak steak and I eventually tore off a piece from it in a bite-sized chunk and I chewed on one bite for like three minutes and still was not able to swallow it. (laughs) So yeah, (laughs) if you have the opportunity to try yak steak, don't. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So, but the, the, the trail overall, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of variety. Once you get higher, you're above the tree line. So you're just going through the mountains and there's not really any vegetation around. They can grow potatoes pretty high up there. I was actually really surprised. That's definitely, um, when you're at the tea houses getting food and stuff, you eat more potatoes than anything else for sure because they can grow them really high. So when you guys are walking, are you talking with each other most of the time or listening to music or just kind of in their own zone? And are, are you guys always close together when you're going? Or sometimes <laughs> you know where you're going. You're going to the same spot, so some may be like, a hundred feet ahead or long distances, you're just at your own pace. Yeah, in general, we stayed together. Um, but there are definitely some times where, like, either Hannah would be like, okay, I'm done with this, and just, like, go faster because you want to set the pace, or uh, me and Hannah would be ahead and Mr. Wilson would be, you know, huffing and puffing and struggling behind, <laughs> just hauling <laughs> on. Um, yeah, it was kind of a, a tortoise and a hare idea. Me and Hannah would, I mean, we had the spry young legs and we would go up a lot faster and then Mr. Wilson would kind of slowly but surely, um, consistently keep going. Um, and we, we listened to some music, some, uh, when we were actually, when we made it to base camp, we listened to, uh, the song on top of the world. I'm on top of the world. Oh, nice. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we would talk quite a bit. So 
it was a good mixture. Um, sometimes it was just a struggle. I mean, we had uh, if you, for anybody who's doing who's planning on doing a big hike with a lot of hilly areas, I would definitely get some trekking poles, like the the hand poles of like they look like ski poles, because um, it definitely helps on the hills. Uh, so sometimes it was just putting your head down and using your poles and just making it up the hill. Um, and sometimes it was more chill and we'd take breaks, water breaks and snack breaks and stuff. So I really expected Everest Base Camp, like the trek to be really cold and like through the snow. And sometimes it was cold, especially once we got up higher towards the base camp. It was cold. You're definitely wearing layers. But as you're hiking, like I would, when we were hiking lots of times, especially with like a up to 60 pound pack, I mean, I would definitely be stripped down to my t-shirt or my, like, base layer. Um, but then if you stop, you're going to want to pretty much right away put on a puffy jacket or something that's going to keep you warm. So layering is a huge, huge one. So there's a lot about a trek to Everest that you may not think of or expect. One thing I was curious about was where did they sleep each night? Well, there are these very convenient tea houses all the way up to base camp. And all those little towns have... Um, they have the tea houses in them and the tea houses are basically, I mean, it's like a little hostel kind of, they've got a lot of rooms. I mean, they're made for people who are doing the base camp trek. Uh, so it's very touristy and it's like, normally we could get a room for about five American dollars for the night for the three of us. The three beds. Um, and they make more of their money because you're kind of expected if you, if you stay the night there, you're expected to also buy food there. Um, mm. and the meals are usually about $5 per person and they get progressively more expensive as you go up mm, um makes sense. so you end up you know spending quite a bit of money on the food um so yeah there's a, a sherpa stew that's mainly potatoes and some other vegetables and ate a had a lot of that just because it's warm <laughs> and filling and gives you the carbs you need to keep going true yeah that makes sense so what was your was that like most of your diet yeah, so we we packed enough snacks with us, like Oreos and Cliff Bars and uh, this like like a powdered drink mix called Soylent. Um, I don't remember hmm. everything that's in it, but it's like really good for you know that kind of like sustainable energy and stuff while while exercising a long times. Um, so we would usually provide ourselves one meal a day out of our like the food that we brought um and then we'd have like usually dinner then when we stopped at the tea house we'd have dinner and when we got up in the morning we'd have breakfast there um so we would pay for one or two meals a day and the rest just use the stuff that we had we had packed up with us mm. and i know uh how much water did you guys have to take because i know especially like in Oof. any instance when you're acclimatizing and and hiking in elevation, like water is a huge deal and super important, especially when when that high up and hiking and expending that much energy every day. So what how, what did you guys have to do for water? How much did you have to take? Yeah, so we were just like kind of constantly drinking. Um, we all had... <laughs> and how much did you have to pee? <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, peeing is also a lot. Um, that's actually an <laughs> uh, interesting fact about the higher when you go to higher elevations. Um, you pee more <laughs> because <laughs> at least from my understanding it's because the the air is like thinner so there's less pressure outside of your body compressing your bladder so the inside you know makes it it stretches more and then you gotta pee all the time interesting um, i never would have thought of that 
Yeah, which was fine for me and Mr. Wilson, but felt bad for Hannah sometimes. It's a little more difficult yeah. to, <laughs> to do that. Yep. Um, oh, actually, I have an interesting peeing story that goes into our extra day of acclimating. Oh, but Go ahead. Um, yeah, so as far as water, we all had little bladders with the straws, like the wraparound straws. Um, and Hannah and Mr. Wilson actually cut their straws like the tubes that they suck out of and they stuck like sawyer filters like little like water filters inside the straw so they didn't have to filter their water they could just fill their bladders up with water and then suck it through that filter the Uh. problem with that was that especially as it got more dirty they had to really suck it out of there um Uh. and it i felt bad for them it sucked it sucked (laughs) good Um, one but i felt bad for them because especially once we were getting at high elevation and you're having a hard time breathing and then having to really powerfully suck to get water out. Yeah. So that sucked for them. But I would just, um, at night I would, and then whenever I needed to during the day, I would just fill my bladder with filtered water from theirs. So I would like fill their up with water and then let it filter out into mine to fill mine up. Mm. Um, so yeah, it was a lot of water. We had pretty, um, efficient filtering systems. Good. What is your story that you were going to tell? Yeah. So when we were, um, we were, uh, we went from uh, Tengbuche, which is a town a little ha- about halfway up. And we went from there to Dingbuche um, one night. And then uh, we were going to spend one day acclimating there. So we were going to do like hike high. There's a little, uh, a hill slash small mountain um, that we could go up high. So Dingbuche is about 14,000 feet. Um, and then we were going to go up to about 16,000 feet, hang out for a couple hours, and then come back down and sleep and then keep going the next day. Um, so we went up on that day hike to about 16,000 feet. And on the way back down, I had to pee because I had to pee all the time. Um, so um, Mr. Wilson had gone down ahead of us and so Hannah and I were hiking down together and I told her to just keep going and I'll catch up. So I stopped and peed behind a big rock and um, then I was catching up, trying to catch up and I was like, oh, this is super cool because it was this pretty steep downhill with some big rocks on it. So I was like, I'll just like jump from rock to rock on my way down, right? Um, but of course. it was, so this is that like, I don't know, 15,000 feet or something. So that's like higher than any point in the continental, continental US. Continental US. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there's not a ton of oxygen up there to begin with. So I'm like kind of jogging down this hill and I felt great going up at this point. I wasn't feeling any altitude sickness. Um, I had actually jogged up part of that mountain at like 16,000 feet. Um, I was feeling super good. And then I was trying to catch back up with Hannah and she saw me coming. She saw me like running down. She's like, this is going to be good. So she got her camera out. So I actually have a video of this and I got going too fast. And then I remember, like, the thought going through my head, like, I'm out of control. This is going to hurt. <laughs> and <laughs> and I, I, like, missed a step and just went, like, head first. Um, and I barely missed a rock with my head. Um, like, Oof. thinking back on it, like, that was a God thing. Like, I, I literally could have died <laughs> um, if I had, like, went straight onto that rock. Um, as it was, I missed the rock. And uh, in the video, especially if you put it in slow motion, you can see my eyes roll back into my head after I hit my head. And um, (laughs) yeah, so then, and Hannah's response was, man, you need to learn how to fall better. (laughs) You jerk. (laughs) Um, So you had a concussion? 
Yeah, I had like a mild concussion. Um, I ended up being in bed for like a day and a half after that. So that slowed us down. We had to do an extra Oof. day of acclimating. So you there. have, that's one of, such a huge blessing that she was able to record that. Because <laughs> what are the odds that at that moment of your trip that it was actually recorded? But the yeah. blessing is we have the here, obviously this is a, a, an audio only podcast, but we, uh, we have the video, correct? <laughs> yeah. And we're going to play the audio for you right here. Oh. You good? Okay, so at this point in the video, you can see Ryan trip on this steep terrain and fall head first. It's quite comical actually, until you see his face and body after hitting the rock go completely limp and unnatural for a split second. It is uh, very clear from the video that he was knocked out for a split second and had a concussion. So yeah, yeah that, so was, you can, that was you it. You can hear me like that little, <laughs> that was when I realized I was falling. Um, and in the video, I'm actually like smiling through that because I'm like, ah, ha, ha, like, what a good time. I'm on Everest. And, like, and then I'm like, Ugh. Um, and tried to play it off like I was fine. And I was fine for a few seconds. And then I started getting like kind of <laughs> a little dizzy and like irritable. And yeah, anyways, mm. it could have been worse, but. So what were what was like the elevation stuff that you felt after that, or as soon as as soon as that happened, did you start feeling stuff, or just once you started getting up more elevation? Yeah, no. So and so what what, we were... what was like the worst effects of elevation that any of you guys felt? Yeah, um, it's kind of hard to tell sometimes the difference between if it's just elevation or if it's a combination of elevation and other things. Mm-hmm. Um, so like for me, so like a mild concussion has some of the same symptoms as elevation. Um, so you can Mm. get headaches or drowsiness or whatever. Um, so I was feeling definitely headaches, definitely drowsiness. Um, so yeah, I was just in bed for like a day and a half and, um, didn't have energy. It was just not feeling super good. So Um, what did you do during that time in bed? You just sleep like the whole time or read or I, I don't remember. I slept a lot. Um, I think I journaled probably, Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I honestly, I honestly don't remember much. Um, yeah. Uh, I didn't eat that much. I remember that. I remember like Hannah, <laughs> Hannah and her dad just like went around the little town we were in and just like hung out and had a good time. And I was just like in bed, <laughs> like this sucks. <laughs> um, but yeah, after a couple of days I was feeling pretty good again. And then we kept going. Um, everybody got sick at some point. Uh, Hannah was actually on the way back down. Hannah was really sick. Um, she was feeling like really nauseous, um, really weak, mm-hmm. with terrible headaches and stuff. And we were really concerned. Um, so we actually <laughs> we actually pushed her super hard to keep going down to where there was the nearest like medical facility. Um, mm-hmm. And I remember <laughs> we we took her into the medical place and they were like, yeah, like she's she's okay. There's nothing we can do for her. But she was just feeling so crappy that she literally just, like, laid down on the floor in the little, like, medical clinic and was like, I'm not moving. I feel like crap. <laughs> uh, yeah, so she was she was not doing so good. And then uh, her dad, I mean, he was a trooper, but, I mean, the man's 60 years old at, like, 18,000 feet elevation. So um, Jeez. he kept chugging. Um, and, yeah, kind of whenever people weren't feeling good, we would distribute weight accordingly. So... At one point, I think my pack was up to like 60 or 65 pounds. Um, so 
Yeah, but we, we all made it. Finally, after days of hiking, they've made it to their final destination. But it doesn't seem to have the impact to Ryan as you might think after all the hard work and time it took to get there. So tell me about that. Once you're fi finally, um, the culmination of the journey, you come up to the 17,500 feet, you see the tents, you see base camp, you see the Kumbu Icefall, uh, you get to see all of that. What, what's it like? Was yeah, it anticlimactic or was it up to your expectations? I don't know that I had a, a bunch of expectations. Um, I definitely didn't appreciate it as much as I wish I had. Um, for me, it was just like, this is the thing that I'm doing and this is cool. Uh, the last little village with tea houses is, uh, it's called Gorik Shep. Um, and that's the last place you can stay before base camp. So we got to Gorik Shep and spent the, I, I think we, I think we got to Gorik Shep like, yeah, we got to Gorakshep like in the in the morning around noontime. So on our on our actual approach to base camp, we left. I think we were staying in Labuche, and we left Labuche pretty early in the morning. Got to Gorakshep either late morning around noon. Grabbed a meal there. Left our stuff in a little hotel room, um, or the hostel tea house whatever, um, and then we pushed to base camp, and. So it was about three hours from Gorakshep to base camp. And during that time, we were actually walking. I think we were technically walking on, I don't know if it was part of the, the Kumbu Icefall, but it was on ice, but there were just like rocks over it. Okay, we'll talk more about the Kumbu Icefall in a bit, but I do want to give you a quick overview just so you understand what it is. The Kumbu Icefall is actually the most dangerous and the first challenge of climbing Everest from base camp. It's literally what it sounds like. It's a huge elevated field of gigantic blocks of ice that are constantly moving. And this constant moving, melting, and shifting actually causes the ice blocks to move about three to four feet each day. It's the movement that's so dangerous because these huge crevasses open up that are hundreds of feet deep without any notice during your crossing of the icefall. Long ladders from one ice block to the next are the only way to get across. Um, so we're on the rocks the whole time. And I mean, at that point you've got like the mountains big. You can't see Everest for most of that time um, because you're too close to the other mountains uh, that are like kind of blocking it. So we, we got to base camp. Um, spent i don't know an hour or two there uh that was a really cool experience like we were taking pictures and stuff they've got a couple big rocks that have like everest base camp and the elevation and stuff mm. um and yeah that was a so for those of you who don't do me know me um i do gymnastics uh, i've done gymnastics in college and stuff so there's a move called like a high angel or people call it a bird um but it's like as a base you like grab the the hips like on the front of your of the top and then lift them up and they just like kind of spread out like a superman kind of airplane <laughs> bird thing and you like hold them above your head so me and hannah got a couple pictures like that um in front of the base camp sign and that was kind of because that's seventeen thousand five hundred feet so there's like 50 percent of normal oxygen there so that was like exhausting like i could barely get her over my head <laughs> jeez um, but we got some cool pictures we met a we met some cool people up there. There's actually a whole bunch of there's this whole crew of people who had brought beers up with them, like they uh -huh. had hiked beers all the way up with them so that they could like crack open a like a, a beer at the top and have a party. 
So that was like that's hilarious. I, yeah, they they had brought a speaker up, so they were playing like loud music and like having a whole like party up there. Um, so that's that was cool so to see. Cool. That's a um, this is slightly off topic, but in the Seven Summits book, the the first guys to to summit the highest peak on every continent, um, their first goal was to uh, get sponsored by Budweiser and take a six pack on top of every summit and then crack it open and like film it and then have it made into commercials so that they could fund their whole trip. <laughs> but their first summit that they did, I think, was Aconcagua in uh, South America in Argentina, like the Andes. Um, and they did it. They they brought it to the top, like the added weight and everything. They made it to the top, but then they forgot that like by the time they got to the top, they'd be frozen. <laughs> and so they popped the lid of each one and like, shoot. <laughs> so like that sponsorship fell through. But <laughs> anyway, that's funny. Yeah, you've got to anything you don't want frozen, you got to keep it. I mean, when you're sleeping, you got to keep it in your sleeping bag. And right. When you're right. hiking, you got to keep it close to your body. How how close? Well, you said that you may have been on the Kumbo Icefall. Yeah, so we definitely got close enough um, to where we could see it. Um, uh huh. Where we so like, for we the, also on... for, let me just give a quick, quick clarification for also those people who don't like haven't researched Everest a ton, <laughs> or haven't watched movies or whatever on it. Uh, the Kumbo Icefall is like kind of the first obstacle after base camp to start getting up to like Camp One and everything, um, to actually climb to the summit. And it's all most people or a lot of people say it's like one of the most dangerous places as well because it's literally just like a field ravine of ice that's constantly moving because it's like it's an ice fall. And so it's constantly cracking and moving. So there's like huge hundreds of feet deep crevasses um, and stuff that you can easily fall into that there's just like ladders from one ice block to the next. And so it's super dangerous. Um, but also like one of one of the more popular famous parts of like the climb of Everest. And so for me, like that's always been something that I've dreamt of, like going to base camp, seeing the Kumbo ice fall, like touching it <laughs> and then coming back and everything. But you guys it seems like you guys got pretty close. Yeah. So <clears throat> we were like on rocks that were on ice. So I don't know if that ice was technically part of the ice. We'll fall. count it. We'll count it. <laughs> cool. So I, you talked about your reaction to base camp, but I know a lot of times when we've talked about this in the past, you've said that Everest was disappointing. Yeah, the actual mountain, we couldn't really, I don't think we could see the mountain from base camp, but after base camp, we we hiked back um, to Gorakshep and slept there that night. And then the next morning we got up early and went to a high point uh, called Kalapatar, which is just a high viewpoint where you can see like eight of the highest summits in the world. I mean, it's, Oof. that was, that was the best view for sure. Um, I can't even comprehend that. And from there you're looking down on base camp. So Kalapatar is, um, about 8,500 feet. Um, a little over that. I think it's 8,514 feet. Um, and from there you can see Everest. Um, you can see the base camp. You can definitely see the, the ice fall from there. Um, and the, like from there looking at Everest, Everest, you can tell it's really big. You can tell it's really tall, but compared to some of the other peaks around it, it's, it's not as beautiful. It's just, mm. it's not as, uh, picturesque. It's not as picturesque. It's not as, uh, jagged or as dramatic. I would say it's not as dramatic as the other peaks. Um, yeah, but it's, it was still really cool to see. So I've got some pictures, 
um, of, of like me with Everest in the background and stuff. So yeah, that hike was really cool. It was really tough. That was a really, really hard hike just because it's such high elevation. Um, Getting up to base camp or to Kalapatur or Kalapatar. both, obviously. Kalapatar. Both of them. Kalapatar is, is a lot more intense because um, it's it's less distance than to base camp. Like from Gorakshep, it's less distance to Kalapatar, but it's like a lot more elevation gain. So they made it to base camp and all the glory of Everest and the surrounding massive peaks. That kind of experience has to do something to you that affects you far past just that singular experience. Ryan had some thoughts on this. Well, I want to focus on Ryan, like, more externally, like, why this trip and, like, how it affected you. Did it motivate you for, like, more climbing and, like, you want to climb more mountains or, like, in the States when you get back? Or did it kind of satisfy that desire and kind of, like, okay, I, I've seen Everest, <laughs> so that's, that's enough for me? Definitely some of both. Um, it made me... It kind of took away any desire I had to try to summit Everest. Uh, just seeing like how dangerous it was and also how miserable it would be, um, <laughs> <clears throat> how expensive it was. Yeah. So yeah, it kind of took away the, the desire to do that kind of intensity, um, of, of mountain climbing, but it definitely was, uh, definitely made me want to do more like backpacking trips and stuff like that. And, um, increased my desire definitely to an extent for for that kind of thing um and like doing more 14ers and stuff like that in the states um yeah definitely and <clears throat> definitely gave me the experience to be confident kind of in doing that kind of stuff uh, we were on the trail for 16 days uh <clears throat> which <laughs> was pretty slow a pretty slow time to do that trek in 16 days but just because of our health issues that we had it took us a little longer mm. um, yeah i would assume that hiking to base camp as an american um hiking up to eighteen thousand five hundred feet and hiking for 16 days through super high elevation and being pretty pretty fine with that uh would give you extreme confidence to be able to climb almost any mountain in the u.s that didn't require like technical skills yeah and i mean i with a lot of stuff like this you just gotta you just have to tough it out like mm. um that's when i because I, I ran a marathon a couple years ago too which i don't think i've i haven't run since i ran that marathon really <laughs> that was one where it was definitely like the <laughs> i did this now i'm done forever <laughs> like i don't want to do this ever again um but yeah like anybody can be a runner and that's what i <clears throat> listening to your first podcast with jimmy gilly uh, uh-huh. i remember him saying like anybody can do this if you put in the work. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I think that's with like Everest Base Camp too. Um, and we did it on a budget. Like we did not spend very much money. Um, yeah, do you know, like I want you to finish that point because it's a really good one, but do you know uh, like an estimate how much you spent? I I can't remember for sure. Most of it was on permits. Um, I think we okay. ended up spending like around $500 on permits whether it was because the the national park is it's called Sagarmatha National Park like that's their name for the mountain. Okay. Um. So it's called Sagarmatha National Park. So you have to have a permit to go there. Then there's a like a base camp trek permit. Um. Mm. So most of the money was on that. But as far as food and lodging, I think we spent about two hundred dollars per person throughout the that's trek. That's not bad for at like all. Food and lodging. Yeah. No, it's not a, not bad at all. 
Um, so, I mean, for 16 days, $200, that's <laughs> yeah. like, not bad at all. Um, so, yeah, we did it on a budget. If you hire a porter and a Sherpa and stuff, then it goes a lot faster. The people who have a lot of money and who are just lazy can take a helicopter up to up to base camp, and then they can just hike down. <laughs> Get so, out of here. <laughs> I know. Yeah, but your, point, see, your like, point is... <clears throat> Your point is really well made because you, like, you're definitely fit in, in exercise, part of an active program, young, but then also Hannah, who is strong and definitely hikes a lot, um, but she's not going to be able to hold as much weight as you. And then, uh, what, her 60-year-old dad? <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> there's a lot of well, barriers for each one of you to, to be able to do this on that kind of budget. Yeah, and, and I would say what... Hannah may lack in in strength and what her dad may lack in age they make up for in just sheer willpower Mm. (laughs) so I mean they 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 were champs I mean it wasn't like for some of it I mean uh, they might have had a harder time than me for part of it but for for the most part I mean they it wasn't like they were struggling to keep up with me you know we were we were all struggling together. <laughs> you guys were a team, right? <laughs> Which is the exciting part. Going through difficult circumstances, you get closer to the people around you that are you're sharing those difficulties with. Yeah, for sure. So Ryan, tell us quick, what were a couple of like the the life lessons that you could take away from a trip like this? Yeah, uh, definitely experience like this. Anything that you're doing that that's 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 that new. <laughs> Anything yeah, that you're yeah. doing that's that new, and also that takes that much effort, you're gonna learn stuff from. Um, I'd say the first thing I learned was be selective of what you take. And that's both a metaphorical and and like literal, literally, I mean, we brought a lot of weight that I felt like was unnecessary. You know, at the, at the end of the trip, you're like, we never use this. Like I took these cliff bars all the way up for 16 days and never ate them, (laughs) you know, because I just got (laughs) so tired of cliff bars. Um, so that and that's cliff I mean, bars, cliff bars are, are hefty boys too they weigh a, yeah. they weigh a bit yeah um and also yeah so any any kind of hiking you're doing backpacking you just got to be careful what you but let's just packing for a weekend trip somewhere you got to be selective of what you take but also um just applying the life in general like being selective of you know what relationships you're going to take with you or being selective mm. of what um beliefs or of what burdens as far as like responsibilities or what you're going to get involved in um the habits that you're going to take with you um that's a big thing for me just because that hike I mean it took it took some discipline and it took some uh, motivation and willpower so being able to learning that that's what that's necessary in our trek of life as well Mm. you know to be selective of what we're taking um, yeah, and then another one was that there's beauty everywhere. Obviously, the Himalayas are beautiful, <laughs> and that trek was beautiful, and uh, sunsets there were beautiful, and all of that. But also, I mean, right now I'm in good old Lincoln, Nebraska, that normally we complain about is just a bunch of cornfields and it's not very beautiful. But I would say Lincoln has some of the most beautiful sunsets I've ever seen just the Midwest in general has beautiful sunsets. Um, and there's beauty everywhere. And I think that if we, if we are waiting out until we can get the mountain high, the Everest base camp experience, if we're waiting out for that kind of beauty, then we're never going to appreciate the beauty around us. 
Um, and that's beauty in nature, but also beauty in the people around you, beauty in the circumstances around you. Um, so I think that if, yeah, if we can take the time to see the beauty around us everywhere, then we can, I think, be more appreciative of the life that we live and not feel like we're not living as exciting as a life of the people who are summoning mountains and stuff. Yeah, I think that's an, an excellent point. It's so easy to get caught up in the big things to forget that every single thing has benefits about it. I remember when we were young, and I think it was like my eighth, seventh or eighth grade summer, we went on a on a family vacation up to Canada because we have some family there. And we went through like Glacier National Park and stuff like that. And we were driving up into the mountains and it was beautiful. Um, but I just remember we camped there for a couple of nights I remember after like one night of camping in the mountains, surrounded by mountains, I was like sick of it. And I found myself like missing flat land. Part of that was because like that was what I was used to. But there's something that that you kind of forget that naturally you find beauty. And so you have to like understand mentally as well and take advantage of those moments because that you have those little things. Cause if you move somewhere else to something uh, where another aspect may be a much more beautiful, you're going to inevitably miss that one other thing that you did prefer about the other place. I think that's super important. All right, Ryan. So tell me this, how did your faith affect this trip? And conversely, how did the trip, affect your faith afterwards that's a good question um well i guess you could kind of say that my faith is the whole reason i ended up on this trip because it was after my years as student missionary it's on the way back to that so without that it never would have happened in the first place um i think my faith affected the way i viewed the whole experience um coming from the worldview that god created the earth um However he, however that happened, God created it, and this beauty was showing his glory, um, the hugeness of the mountains and the beauty all around me was a revelation of him, um, <clears throat> definitely changed the way that I took it in and the way that I affected it. Um, part of how it changed my faith, how the impact it had on me, um, I, I think like the stereotypical kind of... Uh, cliche answer here would be to say you know it made me feel small it showed me the the largeness of God and the smallness of myself I never really felt that um I don't know if that's just because it didn't sink into me or not but one thing that I did I was just looking back in my in my prayer journal from that time period and I lost I lost all the things that I'd written while we were on the trip but shortly after we got back to Kathmandu um I wrote this and this is just a little a little quote from my prayer journal it says Yesterday, while we were driving from the airport back to the hotel, I was seeing so many different people with obviously different lives from each other, and especially from me. And then talking to the God, talking to God, you are the God who created and loves all of them. I was overwhelmed by seeing a handful, but you work in the lives of billions. You're incredible and totally indescribable. Um, so seeing the diversity of life, the diversity of culture, um, the diversity of livelihoods and experiences um, from the people that I talked to from from the UK or people from Australia or people from Nepal locally how everyone has experienced so many things so differently and how God has created such a diversity of people and such a diversity of 
experiences. Um, <clears throat> and yet, I mean, the Bible says that he genuinely cares about each person. Um, and that's wild to think about. And I, I don't fully grasp that. Um, the radical teachings of the Bible, the like how radical God's relationship is with us from, from the Bible's point that he has adopted us, that we are his sons, that Jesus said that when you go to the quiet place to pray, like God's presence is there. I mean, when Jesus was on earth, his mission was to save people by dying for them. He could have done that without actually being intentional in everyday relationships, but he chose to spend every day of his ministry intentionally seeking out people to have relationships with them. Um, and seeing like the beauty that God, create, God created in the Himalayas, the power that it takes to create something like that in the, <clears throat> the bigness of God compared to the billions of lives and all the, the jam-packed city of Kathmandu and all the people I saw thinking about the same God that created those mountains, that created that beautiful scenery out in the middle of nowhere, also created each one of those people and has an actual interest in their lives and has an actual interest in my life. That is, that's a huge realization. Um, and Yeah, I think that's a, an incredible revelation. And without going too far into, into the topic, I think one of the things that you pointed, touched on that I love is the relational aspect and that God has intentionally created us to be relational beings and to strive for relationships. Yeah. And he's given us all these things like the Himalayas and like all these things to, to increase and grow relationships with him and with each other. Because like I felt that traveling, traveling a lot and sometimes just by myself in these beautiful places but I don't have anybody with me to share that with. Mm. And like before doing that, I always thought like, oh, that's no problem. Like I'll be able to enjoy it just the same. Like it's dope places, adventure, ex exploration, all this stuff, excitement. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah. But then realizing like there's a almost a sense of depression that sets in because I'm seeing all these incredible things that God gave me, but I don't have another being to share that with or to grow in relational yeah. feeling with, with that. And so that's, that's like their tools to express our relationship with God and and with others. Yeah, because that goes all the way back to the very beginning where God originally said, let's make man in our image. So showing his plurality of his relationship with the Son and the Holy Spirit. Um, and then, mm. the, like, right after that, God created man, and then God was like, it's not good for him to be alone. Exactly. Like, we are in God's image, and we're relational, meaning he's relational, and he's relational, meaning we're right. relational. Um, and, yeah, thinking about... Yeah, I mean, I know for me, I, I still can't actually understand or actually believe even that God sees me as his son. And that when he created those mountains, he had in mind that his sons and daughters like me could go and, and appreciate that beauty. You know, that level of relationship is just wild. Yeah, man. It's an ethereal experience. Oof, that's a big word. Well, uh, yeah, got to throw those in here so I have some clout, you know. <laughs> People trust me. <laughs> Listen to Caleb Hawkinson, ladies and gentlemen. He is an intelligent being that uses four-syllable words. That's a, that's a big deal. <laughs> All right, man, we'll, we'll have another episode together talking about more uh, religious topics and stuff that we've both struggled with and grown with or questioned or things that we're still debating Yeah. because uh, that's super interesting and super good to talk about as well. But... Thank you so much for taking the time, um, an hour, hour and a half, however long this has been, yeah. <laughs> um, to explain. Some. And it's been 
<laughs> it's been super exciting for me because I love this crap. And I also haven't heard in, in this kind of detail from your experience. So I'm getting to relive some of my um, fantasies in a way. Um, but yeah, anyway, thanks for taking the time. And for sure. thanks for having we're living me. in different states right now. But hopefully I'll uh, see you in a few months. Sounds good. Thank you guys so much for listening to this podcast and making it all the way through. I hope that you got excited and motivated and inspired hearing about Everest and base camp and the hike and the trek and all of that incredible stuff that I'm super jealous about. But besides that, even if you're not able to make it to Mount Everest base camp, that doesn't mean that you can't apply things that you heard here and get motivated to go out, hike some hills, some 4,000 foot mountains, 5,000 foot, 12,000, 14,000, whatever state you live in in the U.S., <laughs> take that time to push yourself to experience new things. Um, so yeah, thanks for joining and staying till the end. I hope you have a great day.